Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dad, what's going on? What's going on? Nothing much. Uh, finally getting back to work this week. Um, I'm back at my research site after spending a nice two weeks relaxing, vacationing, vacationing, vacationing. Trying to get that that brain sharp again. Right. I'm still, it's still, you know, in that process, like, you know. Um, But yeah, it's been a pretty, pretty good uh, two weeks and just ready to get back to work. How about you? Yeah, same. I mean, last week, because I had to vacation the week before. So my last week was kind of crazy. Just a lot of stuff going on at work and, and catching up. And I was like kind of still exhausted from the vacation. Um, but, you know, this this week, this Monday, you know, I'm hitting starting things in stride. You know, it seems like it's going to be a good week being productive, getting back to the swing of things. But it did take like a week for me to to recover. So hopefully your week does better than my first week back. <laughs> yeah. When vacations involve traveling, you often need a vacation from that vacation, like just days to rest because it's tiring yeah yeah um that yeah because i think the traveling just yeah tires you out you know i think the vacation's fun but then like traveling back and flying and driving and whatever if you have layovers all that kind of stuff yeah that takes a little toll so you need a couple Mm -hmm. days just to do nothing from that um yeah okay um other than that yeah there's not much been going on i'm trying to think and uh for me yeah other than just working sometimes it's just like that it's, that's all the news you got going on. Your life just working. Right. <laughs> can you believe it's April already? April, I know. And the weather out here was, you know, this past weekend was like 70 on Saturday. So nice. it was nice. Yeah, went out for a nice walk and stuff. Got some fresh air. So, so spring wants to come. Yeah, it's peeping his head out. So hopefully it just comes on. Come on, spring. When does your semester <laughs> end? I want to say like. May, maybe like the first week of May, maybe okay. like May 2nd or 3rd or something like that's the last day of classes. So, Ooh, so you, you got one good month and yep. maybe some grading after, but. Yep, probably about five or so weeks and then summertime. <laughs> summer, summer, summertime. You, I mean, I guess you're still doing your research up until. Well, yeah, how long are you doing your research? You're going to do it until the school year ends for them, like in June or something? Or mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll do it till the school okay. year ends. And there's one like major event I want to capture in June. And after that, I'm just going to have to buckle down and figure out what does my analysis and writing schedule look like? Mm, okay, okay. Yeah, I shouldn't be too bad. Get yourself on a nice routine mm-hmm. once you're done with the research. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now I'm doing the research. Like, <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Be able to just sit down and write. Mm-hmm. That's the, you know, I won't say it's the easier part, but it's definitely uh, a better routine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. All right. So, you know, I guess we got some old Lord news ready to rock for this week. We got a little bit. Got a little bit. All right. All right. Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most 
current and eye-opening Oh Lord News of the Week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Okay, so this first story uh, is actually very kind of alarming to me, especially given my dietary preferences. Um, so Trump has recently threatened to shut down the Mexico border. Um, and, you know, it might not seem like a big deal, but if you love avocados like I do, then this is some really big oh Lord news, oh. because if Trump shuts down the borders, then that's going to stop a lot of goods that are imported to the U.S. from fruits to vegetables. You're talking about limes, avocados, tomatoes. Uh, some of those things are primarily come from Mexico. Um, a lot of alcohol that's imported. So mm-hmm. it's just kind of like summertime might look a little bit different for us if Trump actually does follow through with his threat to shut down the Mexico border. Oh, you know, not the avocados, man. Not the avocado. Guacamole. <laughs> for the bougie people, your avocado toast. Uh, yeah, avocado toast. <laughs> but, you know, just think about even beyond that, like I said, you know, the tomatoes, other vegetables, alcohol. Um, you know, there are some vegetables that aren't named, but it's kind of like these are things that would impact us. So you think about the the shutdown that happened earlier in the year and how it had like a ripple effect for, you know, other Americans, even if you were still getting a paycheck. Well, you know, border closings and some of these other decisions will impact you as well. And even if it doesn't cause like a shortage or they never go away, it could mean higher prices, you know, if there's mm-hmm. greater demand, uh, because right now I'm buying avocados for like 45 cents. You know, they mm-hmm. could be like two dollars, which they have been before. Um, so just think about like you might be paying a little bit more for goods this summer um, or this spring if Trump actually does go through with the border closing. Mm. Hopefully, got Trump, man, just always just, I just feel like nothing ever goes right or it feels better like we actually gain from him being in office it's just like everything is detrimental it's like we lose lose money from taxes now we're gonna lose avocados this man is playing games people losing their families like it's nothing positive about this guy man. right i mean but he's still eating good you know what i'm saying his family's still profiting off mm-hmm. of all of this and it's it's us the everyday Americans that yeah. are most impacted by his egotistical decisions because it's all of this is ego because the threat ego. is about if Mexico will not stop people from crossing the border he's going to close the border oh my goodness and it's probably going to make things worse yeah this is how a lot of people making money over there now all of a sudden they can't make no money mm-hmm. so it's probably going to put people more in desperate situations and they're probably going to come over again just like mm-hmm. what happened before with the NAFTA trade this guy okay yeah all righty Okay, so this next story is pretty crazy. So I'm sure you've heard of climate change. Do you believe in it? There are some doubters. Yeah, yeah, I'm a believer. (laughs) Okay. Well, 
recently, um, climate change has resulted in a lot of like mountains, which have a lot of snow and stuff like that. The snow has been melting. And in one instance, uh, people have recently been discovering um, hikers who kind of passed away on the mountains. Mm -hmm. Well, climate change might turn um, uh, Denali into a literal mountain of you know what dookie (laughs) what yes because people hike these mountains and where do they go that that is true i know (laughs) as the snow starts to melt so will the you know what (laughs) and they are expecting like a sludge of uh bowel movement to just start (laughs) flowing down the mountain. That's nasty. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that is nasty. If you live close to there, that's a terrible experience, man. Oh, that's a terrible experience. You can't just imagine how that is going to smell. So like, and that's one. So we talk about climate change. There are deniers that are people that don't want to put policies in place, but like... There are real consequences to our decisions. There's, there are. Yeah, this whole climate change thing. Uh, but that's crazy. A mountain full of feces, man, just sliding down to people's backyards. Yes. That's but yeah, I never think about it before. Like when people do hike up these mountains, there's no bathrooms up there. So that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's really true to think about. Okay. That's interesting. Okay, this next story is a little bit tragic. Uh, So a guy, a 19-year-old African-American male by the name of Omarion Banks, took a lift home to his new apartment. Um, He was not 100% familiar with, you know, the apartment complex that he had just moved into with his girlfriend. He was actually FaceTiming his girlfriend as he knocked on what he thought was their new apartment door. Well, shortly after knocking on the door, a man uh, named Daryl Bynes grabs a gun and threatens him. The the boy runs away, but the guy still shoots him from the balcony. Um, And, you know, the guy, uh, Omarion was apologizing, like, sorry, I'm at the wrong house. The man said, no, you not, in word, you at the right house. And he shot two more times. That's sad, man. Mm-hmm. These people. Uh, so the man was arrested. I don't know if he's going to try to pull some stand your ground. I don't even know if Georgia has stand your ground. Uh, but in case people are wondering, uh, the man that has been arrested appears to be African-American to me or black or some variation of it. Mm. That's even why. Why are you going to take somebody's life, man? And especially if they run in and they, there's an accident like. What's wrong with people, man? Yeah, I don't know. It gave me, um, you know, it reminded me of that Dallas shooting, but it also kind of reminded me of like, you know, the Trayvon Martin. It's kind of like you can make a mistake. You're, you know, in the wrong place or, you know, and people just like really overreacting. And I think the guy was arrested because 
Omarion was retreating. He was yeah. away. He was apologizing. Um, and in addition to his girlfriend who was on FaceTime with him, there were other witnesses that heard him saying, sorry, I was at the wrong door. Mm. Mm. So sad, man. This, this, this stuff with guns and making people feel like they the man or the woman just taking lives. Mm. It's such a such a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Such a sad thing. And and um, you know, and rest in peace too. Like this whole Nipsey Hustle situation. Oh yeah. You know, so sad too. I mean, you know, that's been all Nipsey. Like, oh man, this is like, you know, I guess this isn't. Um, this is one of the times, like I guess, when it comes to artists that really just hit me. Mm-hmm. You know, because Nip- Nipsey, he's like our age, and you know, he coming off a great year with his album and um, Grammy nominated. And had a lot of things in the works. You know, it's funny seeing that all these other artists, you know, who are saying rest in peace to Nipsey, um, the Drakes and the J. Coles and everybody talking about how they all had songs lined up to come out this summer with him. You know, like he was about to pop Mm -hmm. this next coming year. And not only just his career wise, but just following Nipsey's following his like. Um, his life and the things that he were doing, like he was really promoting black businesses and being self-sustaining and and investing and getting assets and, and growing in our communities um, a lot, you know. Uh, so it's like he was just such a positive uh, thing for our culture, for not just the music industry, but for all of us, for the black community in general. And, mm-hmm. you know, to see this happen to him over something that I'm pretty sure was silly. You know, an argument or what have you. Did somebody take his life with gun violence? Is like super sad. They said that he actually tweeted like uh, one or two hours before like that. um, Having like the, you know, strong enemies is the greatest or something like that. I wonder if he was feeling, you know, that sense that people were out to get him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. I think it was something like that, like having the strongest enemies, the greatest film, or something along those lines. Yeah. Um. Uh. And so, yeah, and it's truly after you know, outside of one of his businesses, or I think it was a clothing store or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got shot, and it's just sad because you know him and Lauren London, tight of course, been together for a while, and leaving behind two kids. He's a father. It's just super sad, man. Nothing's worth it. So I know everybody's mourning about that. Just to see a good, good person go, you know, 33 years old. Yeah. And song, his album is great. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and his album was very positive, talking about, you know, motivating and, and, and building up our own communities and things from his life and his narrative. Uh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. So rest in peace, Nipsey, and sending positive energy and prayers to his family and, and his kids and all that stuff. I agree. I agree. Um, uh, another thing I want to talk about, too, is uh, this whole Cardi B situation. You heard about that? Oh, uh, when they were like, uh, surviving Cardi B? Yeah. Uh, I, I was curious, though, because that was interesting to me. I really never think about it before, but listening to the debate about uh, Cardi B. So for those of you who don't know, um, Cardi B, an old video of her surfaced when she was kind of talking about how she had to grind and how she was hustling back in her stripper days. And one of the things that she used to do was essentially um, take men would like, she would kind of offer up sex and men would go back with her and she would pay them for sex and she would drug their drinks and pretty much, you know, they would either pass out or what have you. She would drug them and then she would rob them. 
and then leave. And then, so now there's a lot of controversy about this because, you know, in the whole Me Too era, era we've seen, you know, people like Bill Cosby and others who, you know, if, if people are saying when a, men, a man does this, you know, it's the blowback is very big and problematic and people, you know, take it seriously. And so people are saying, should we take this Cardi B situation just as serious? Should she be canceled? Um, you know, it's kind of rape culture or drugging people and robbing them, you know, the whole situation. Uh, so it's interesting conversation um, to be had about. So I was kind of wondering your thoughts uh, from what you heard about it or what you think about it. Mm, I feel like it's, People are right to call her to the carpet. You know, should she be canceled? You know, I'm not going to get into that, but I don't think anybody should ever be too big that they cannot be called out for what they've done that's wrong. And I feel like I've seen debates on both sides, like, oh, you know, guys, because uh, there was Rick Ross where he talked about like uh, putting a molly in somebody's drink. But if yeah. I remember, he got called out on that too and so I yeah, just it's, a lot of sponsorships. Mm-hmm. it's one of those things where I think people love Cardi B so because at least along my timeline it was all like you know kind of defending her and for me it's one of those things where I don't want to like somebody so much that I cannot call them out when they are wrong um, yeah. and I don't, cause it, it reminds me of too much of like the Trump things like, oh, I can shoot somebody in the middle of Times Square and I'll be, be fine. I don't care who yeah. you are. I don't want anybody to have that type of effect on humans to where they can do anything and people are going to find a way to defend it. So I'm going to say that is kind of where my sentiments about this come from. I think mm-hmm. it's wrong, like drugging people, you know, robbing people. There are a lot of people that are in dire situations and they turn to like crime to, you know, address their issues of poverty. And I think that's an issue that deserves to be talked about. Like, you know, sometimes people are pushed into these situations and I think you can hold that and say, you know, we kind of understand how she might be have been pushed into certain lifestyles because of her circumstances. And also say she was wrong, especially like the drug, like people could have died from being drugged. And so I think that reminds us of our conversation, uh, I think back in December about how people can both be victims and perpetrators. Uh, She's a victim of her circumstance of poverty, but she's also a perpetrator by drugging and robbing people and not very smart at all for advertising it. You know, she called herself up by like feeling the need to like brag about it on social media and like actually make tapes of that. That just also wasn't smart, but I don't want anybody to ever get too big where they can't be called out. So I don't want to hear like too many excuses like, Oh, you know, I understand. Like, no, she was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's definitely what it boils down to, right? Uh, Just the nuts and bolts of the situation the behavior was wrong. Uh, you're drugging people, you're robbing them. I mean, that's, there's nothing right about that. Uh, I agree with you too. Like, you know, this shouldn't be something that should be glorified um, from, well, this is something that shouldn't be glorified uh, from Cardi B or her fans, you know, but what, and also what I've been finding interesting too, is because a lot of men have been like, no, it's not that serious. You know, it comes with the territory uh, with sex work and or people who are prostitutes or whatever. Like it happens. Um, you know, people get robbed. You know, that's always a risk. Um, and also, so it's like the, you know, men have been like kind of brushing it aside as well and not trying to take it as serious. But then I've also heard conversations of like, 
why it's not being taken serious. And people are like, you know, in the, when it's usually when it's female victims, usually oftentimes female victims come forward and then, you know, it makes things a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were like the way, you know, masculinity is set up and things like that. It's going to be rare for men who be who are victims like this to come forward. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Cause they'll, you know, whatever be seen as less of a man or you got God and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like, even when these situations happen and, and the, and the female, the woman is a perpetrator, uh, will male victims come out and say, you know, raise their hands and be like, I was a victim and let's take this serious. Uh, so it just sparked a lot of interesting conversation, things that I really didn't think about when it's flipped on the other side, when we talk about me too and what's been going on, uh, this kind of culture and stuff like that. I do have a question. So mm-hmm. in, in rap, a lot of illegal behaviors are generally uh, kind of glorified. So it's just kind of like mm-hmm. people in rap songs, they talk about robbing people. Is there a difference between you know, taping a YouTube or Snapchat or whatever video talking about how you used to draw uh, drug and rob people versus like talking about robbing people or whatever in a rap song. Is there a difference? Uh, there's no, uh, there's really no difference, right? I mean, a crime is a crime. So yeah, you're talking about robbing and shooting and stabbing and, and killing and doing jail time. And that's the funny thing about it. What I also think about this is that um, people don't realize like the crime world is very, is gendered in a lot of ways too. And so female crimes and male crimes are different. So yeah, a lot of the male crimes going to be drug dealing and, and, and the violence or what have you. But what Cardi did is very common. Like if you're, if a female perpetrator is going to be things dealing with sex work and getting over on people, right. Or robbing them in that fashion. So it's like, she committed crimes, um, that are, gendered in a way right so now that she's where she is and she's telling her life story her narrative is essentially the same as any other rapper or whoever that's talking about their life story and if they were doing drug dealings and stuff like that it's just a different type of crime so i don't think one is worse than the other per se um if it's accepted we accept it where all these other male rappers say then it should be somewhat accepted if cardi was putting it in songs too um as well, so it's it's it's, it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to say the least. Uh, I I, I don't. Know. I'm trying to figure out what I think the response would have been different if she had wrapped it. Because sometimes I'm not gonna be. I'm gonna be honest and say I don't 100 believe everything that rappers say that they True. did, especially mm-hmm. when they're doing it in rap. But it was just kind of like I really believe that she did those things because she it was kind of like a, her own confessional. Yeah, she said it on Instagram. So mm-hmm. I think that was a difference for me. It's kind of like, oh yeah, you you a killer, you a drug dealer. Probably ain't never even seen them. Because to be honest, uh, like what was his name, Lil Yachty, or the one with the red hair? Like you look at these rappers' backgrounds, like oh yeah, you grew up in a two parent household uh, in the suburbs, and now you like this mumble rapper or whatever you. So it's just kind. Like there are a lot of like rappers who I'm just like, I don't believe you when you rap about these things, although you are glorifying them, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It, may, it makes sense. Uh, so I think, yeah, if she put it in the song, it probably definitely be received a little different. But then again, even that begs conversation too, because it's like when Rick Ross said it, he lost mad sponsorships. <laughs> and so it's like if Cardi said it in the song, would she lose mad sponsorships? Um, who knows? But Rick Ross was never as big as Cardi B. Yeah. Uh, so I think a lot of people were just saying too, just like, Car- is Cardi B going to be affected by this? 
probably not. But they said if victims came forward, then probably she would start losing things. Um, so I think that'll probably be the truth too. I really don't think she's going to lose any money from it right now because she makes a, people, a lot of people a lot of money at the moment. Yeah, I mean, Cardi, she, you know, the spotlight is on her right now. And um, yeah, I, I, it's going to be hard to, and I don't want her to be taken down, but it'll be hard to take her down. I just want to make sure that there's nobody in this world that's too big to be called out or punished if they do something wrong. I just don't like that. It's just something that's scary about that. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. So, um, and one last thing I want to talk about too, that because you know I feel like a lot has happened. Um, we saw that Omari Hardwick and Beyonce oh situation. Oh my god! Yeah, B two. They call that B two. <laughs> I was like, what is Ghost doing in these streets, man? Out here causing a muck. Uh, again, for those of you who don't know, it was the NAACP Awards um, and Image Awards this past weekend, and uh, Beyonce and uh, Jay Z were. Uh, recognized um, and you know a lot of other black celebrities there and there was this clip going around of Amari Amari Hardwick who plays Ghost in the show Power and he was you know greeting and saying hello to Jay-Z and then Beyonce essentially what he did was he gave he said he went to he said hello Jay-Z and he went over to Beyonce and like gave her a hug but first he gave her like a kiss on the cheek then he gave her a hug and it was like a long embrace and then he gave her like another kiss on the cheek as he was leaving but it really wasn't on the cheek, it was very close to her lips. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> there was a lot of controversy. Everybody saying, come on, bro, you're doing the most. And like, what, what is he doing? And all this blowback and all the beehive, leaving bee uh, emojis, all in his comments and all that stuff. So it was just pretty funny. It's um, funny. So okay, the first, so I'll be honest with you. I'm a hugger. I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like some people are more touchy-feely. I felt like the first kiss was, okay. Cool. That second one is mm-hmm. like, you're doing mm-hmm. a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> you do a whole lot. And I, the expression on her face, I felt like she was trying to hide it, but I think that bothered her too. Like, if you saw her, she, I don't know. Yeah. It looked like she was trying not to react, but I saw a reaction. Like, it was like a what the, you know what, like, WTF. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I saw it in her face too, you know, and I was looking hard. I was like, maybe I'm just seeing it, but like, because the, the first kiss on cheek was normal. Yeah. It was like definitely on the cheek, quit hug. But that second one was mad close to the lips. I'm sure he got a little bit of lip. Yeah. And, I, and she probably was like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, you in front of all these people, yeah. everybody say hello. Jay's right there. And I'm sure if you would have said something to Jay, might not have went so well. Um, so she played it cool, but you know, Omari about to, <laughs> he about to get he about to get it. I know he married and stuff like that, so I'm even wondering what his wife thinking. Mm-hmm. Like, bro, what you, what you over there doing, man? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? If we're going to talk about him, we cannot uh, dismiss talking about the Biden controversy. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Uh, you want to tell the people about that? Yes. So uh, recently, I think Arizona, uh, either lawmakers, I think she had run for the lieutenant governor. I'm, I'm not going to pretend to remember the, the title, uh, but Biden had campaigned on her behalf prior to going out on stage. Biden put his hands on her shoulders or she says, allegedly, you know, uh, put his hands on her shoulder 
kind of put his nose in the back of her hair and I think also gave her like a, a kiss in the back of the head before she mm-hmm. went out and she didn't like it. And this was also followed by the fact that there are lots of like little clips and videos of Biden doing this to lots of other women at like large events, the hands on the shoulder, the kind of nose in the hair. And I've Mm. seen that before. Like if you just Google like, you know, Biden touching or something like that, you'll probably come across a lot of memes where like, I think before the Me Too movement, it was kind of a joke of like, you know, Biden kind of like creepy a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think now in the Me Too era, people are like, "Mm, this is really inappropriate. Because I remember people, at least in my online message board community, like people joking about Biden, like, doing things like that but now that like me too and we're like really discussing like what is appropriate and what's not all of these incidents are like "Mm, Biden I don't know I don't know about you (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah it's a bit wild uh you know he's being accused of these things and I think yeah it's funny how like time changes things because few years ago we looked at it like oh you know everybody's either joking about it's not that serious like come on bro what are you doing Mm -hmm. um but now when people address these things or it comes up it's a different lens um and it's not taken so kindly uh and so he he had to come out i think he did come out and like issue a statement pretty much saying that like you know he more he was probably wrong and you know he he needed to take when women come out and say these things you know take it seriously and really consider and be careful of your actions um so you know his response was good but it's like if you've done i didn't know he he i just knew it was the one uh woman that has come out of dubai i know this was like a behavior of his (laughs) that's something he always did which is now raises my eyebrows a little bit more like okay bro yeah and like i said you can find videos and i just googled because you know that was you know i don't want to be dismissive of uh Mm -hmm. lucy flores's position it was the democratic nominee for lieutenant governor of nevada not arizona so i had the title correct not the state and her name is lucy flores um but yeah, it's it's crazy. And it doesn't look very good, especially when you put it within the context of him, uh, I think, going so hard at the Anita Hill. Um, what do you call that? Like the investigation of like the Anita oh, yeah. Hill, uh, Clarence Thomas uh, incident um, that she spoke about. And, you know, people have been calling him to task on that recently because they were like, you know, you went really hard on her. You hadn't like apologized to her in the way that you should have, especially when we think about like the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation and how the professor stepped forward to talk about that. And, you know, when uh, Professor Nita Hill went up in the early 90s, that was a very different time. It wasn't the era of Me Too and the way she was treated was like considered appalling. And Joe Biden was a part of that. Um, and I think he people really started like looking at him sideways when uh, the Brett Kavanaugh investigation and confirmation came up because it's kind of like, 
you know, we're at this place again. And now we have a very different tone to, you know, how we're investigating these allegations. So I think his touchy feeliness looks 10 times worse when you put it within the context of, I think, the way he handled the uh, Anita Hill investigations. For sure. For sure. And, um, you know, I also hear about her, him and Stacey Abrams. Yeah. That rumor. <laughs> yeah, Stacey. Apparently, you know, they were saying that Joe Biden was looking to have Stacey Abrams run as his running partner. And she was like, nah. You know, pretty much like you didn't endorse me when I was running and didn't really hear from you. And now, you know, I'm not going to help you uh, look good or, uh, you know, make your platform better. Um, it's not going to happen. Um, so I thought that was admirable to Stacey Abrams. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause I feel like some people were taking a run like, oh, this is an opportunity. I could be vice president. But she has some principles that she stands on. Is like the way you treat me. Just don't think you're going to come in now and I'm going to come save you mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways. Because they always looking for black women to save them after the fact, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think it was good that she did because she could have really bolstered him up. She really could have. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's exactly what he needed. But now, nah, player, mm-mm, you got you got to do better than this. And so, uh, I think this also kind of leads us to our topic today, uh, where we talk about white fragility mm-hmm. um, with uh, author uh, Robin D'Angelo. Um, you guys may have heard of this book; it came out not too long ago, and I've seen it, you know, on on tons of headlines and social media, and people ramping about it. It's a New York Times bestseller, so it's awesome having this opportunity to come speak with such an amazing author about this work, um, really talking about white folks and and racism, and pretty much how it understands racism is a practice and it's not only restricted to like the bad people, right? Quote unquote, bad people, essentially people who we always know are like uh, explicitly racist and, and hate black folks. But she really highlights how people like white allies and white liberals also participate in racism in a lot of ways um, and how it's a defense mechanism. These defensive moves actually help uh, racism continue. So it's a really, really interesting book and an even better conversation that we have with her today. Mm, yeah, I, I think this is a perfect conversation to have around um, this time. And mm-hmm. book is awesome. You should pick it up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely pick it up. Um, but, you know, this is an awesome interview, so we're not going to hold y'all up anymore. We're going to get to it and then uh, we'll catch up with y'all after the interview. All right. Discussions about race and racism in America are often led by African-Americans and other people of color. Generally missing from these conversations are white Americans who have been insulated from racial discomfort, largely due to our segregated society. Today, we interview Dr. Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, and explore the implications of white fragility on our nation's discourse about race and the experiences of everyday racism among people of color. Additionally, we discuss the role of progressives in contributing to racist systems of oppression and how the white community can move forward in addressing issues of race and racism. Welcome, Dr. D'Angelo. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yes, we're very happy to have you. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so the way we like to start our interviews with our guests is just for our guests to tell our listeners a little bit about themselves. So can you give us a little bit about, about your background and kind of what led you to do what you're doing today? Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a white woman. Uh, I live in Seattle, Washington. 
Uh, I grew up um, poor and working class, so I didn't go to college till much later in life. Uh, and there I was, graduated with a degree in sociology and had no idea what I could do for a living. And then I, uh, I saw this job for a diversity trainer, and I just thought, uh, oh, wow, that just sounds so cool. And of course, I'm qualified to lead people in discussions of uh, racial inequality. After all, I'm a vegetarian, uh, so I couldn't possibly be racist. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I'm facetiously making a point, uh, several points. One, um, white progressive obliviousness. Uh, two is uh, the mediocrity with which white people get away with. I mean, I was not qualified for the job. Uh, I thought it would be fun. Um, and I, I got it. And I was really in for the most profound learning of my life. And it was a parallel process. Kind of part one was working side by side with people of color who were challenging the way I saw the world and my place in it. And part of being white is I could be that far in life and never have experienced my uh, racial worldview challenge before and never in any kind of sustained way uh, by a significant number of people of color. Uh, and I was like a fish being taken out of water. I wouldn't have even been able to tell you I had a racial worldview, right? I was just human, right? I was just an individual. And then we went out into the workplace and interracial teams to try to talk to almost you know, overwhelmingly white employees, sometimes 100% white, uh, about, you know, racial inequality and the hostility and the delusional outrage about reverse discrimination. And, you know, I, I had enough of my own socialization to relate to it, but I was getting a very, very transformed uh, uh, worldview. And at first I was pretty... Uh, immobilized by it. But over time, I just got better and better at articulating how we white pull, people pull off uh, an insistence that our race has no meaning in a society that is profoundly separate and unequal by race. So after years of that, I went on to get my PhD uh, in the field called whiteness studies, which might sound kind of awkward to your to your listeners. Um but for as long as white people have studied race, we've tend to study you, not ourselves. And as long as we've been doing that, people of color have been saying, why don't you study yourselves? You are our problem after all. And in the late 80s, early 90s, some um, scholars took up that, that call. And so whiteness studies is really the examination of whiteness, of uh, white supremacy, uh, white racial identity, etc. Mm. Uh, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm happy you brought up the point about uh, whiteness studies. It's, it's a growing field. Um, and I think it's like, like you said, like other people have said, I think it's much needed just just to kind of understand, uh, you know, different worldviews. Um, so I'm, I'm happy you're really doing this work. Um, so the title of your book, White Fragility, Why Is It So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism? Um, and, we're, you know, we're going to talk about the content of your book. But before we do that, uh, can you just tell our listeners what it means when you say white fragility and, and what that looks like? Yeah, you know, the, the fragility term is meant to capture how little it takes to unsettle and upset white people uh, on issues of race. So for many white people, the mere suggestion that being white has meaning uh, 
uh, will cause great umbrage. Uh, to generalize about white people will definitely uh, cause umbrage, right? White people do not like being generalized about. Uh, part of being white is the privilege of uh, being seen and seeing oneself as an individual separate from one's social group. We've really never had to build our capacity to withstand the discomfort of being challenged racially, right? Uh, but the impact of our fragile response uh, and our fragile sensibilities is not light at all. The impact is not fragile. The impact is uh, powerful because it's a weaponized kind of defensiveness and hurt feelings and tears. And it functions really effectively to maintain the racist status quo and our dominance. I think of white fragility as uh, the sociology of dominance kind of the everyday ways that the average white person protects white supremacy and the, how they benefit from it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because um, even, you know, the term white fragility and even when we talk about race, racism and racist, right? I think the first image that comes to mind are, uh, you know, of course, you may maybe, you know, post before the civil rights and extreme race, racist and Ku Klux Klan and, and that extreme kind of uh, explicit form of racism. Uh, but in your book, you know, you mentioned that, and I think you state this, uh, white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color when we talk about these issues of race and racism and having this conversation. Um, so what led you to draw that conclusion? Because I know that probably had people do a double take and, and also raise some eyebrows because when we think of white progressive, we think of allies to the to the movement and to people of color, uh, but you are saying otherwise. So kind of, can, it, can you explain your, your conclusion in that regard? Absolutely. Just before I do, I want to just um, add a piece about what I had said earlier about the umbrage white people take at being generalized about. And I want to be really clear. Yes, uh, I am an individual. I am also a member of a social group in which you can literally predict whether my mother and I were going to survive my birth based on my race. And you can predict how long I'm going to live based on my race. It is profound and it has meaning. And yes, we're individuals, but we also have to be willing to grapple with the collective socialization that we all receive by virtue of living in a shared culture and swimming in uh, shared water. Mm -hmm. The reason that I uh, like to kind of, <laughs> let me put it this way, white progressives are my specialty. Um, and that is because I'm a huge white progressive and I understand the consciousness. And earlier when I, you know, facetiously said that I thought my vegetarianism, you know, qualified me as free of racism, you know, I, I was being facetious, but not completely. Right. We tend to be incredibly um, sure that it's not us. Right. So. First of all, white progressives are most likely to be in the lives of people of color, but we see ourselves as free of racism. And so we're not receptive at all to receiving feedback on our inevitable but often unaware racist patterns. We can be incredibly arrogant, incredibly certain, and really lack humility. I think white progressives can be the hardest to try to talk to about what we're saying and doing 
that is not actually conveying what we think it conveys, right? We tend to put all our energy into making sure you see us as free of racism. Of course, none of the things we think it are, it are doing that is probably convincing to you, but we don't know that, right? So all our energy goes into kind of self-image and none of it goes where it needs to go for the rest of our lives, you know, which Mm -hmm. is ongoing, continual education, mistake-making, risk-taking, humility, vulnerability, and ultimately strategic, intentional, anti-racist action. White progressives seem to think that niceness is enough, right? Just smile Mm -hmm. at, you know, people of color when you walk past them, and that shows that you're free of racism. Mm -hmm. So that leads to another point you raise, which is what we think a racist is. Yes, there are avowed, um, what I think of as card-carrying racists. You know, they march in Charlottesville. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. think our, our president is quite proud of his racism. Uh, like everybody else, he will deny he has it, but he uses it quite uh, effectively and strategically. I am not an avowed racist in that, um, really the only difference I see between Donald Trump and myself, because I recognize what comes out of his mouth. It's not like I haven't heard it. It's not like it also hasn't been planted in my head. Um, but I've, I'm really, really working to challenge it where I, I see him as embracing it. Right. Mm. But this idea that racists are always individuals, which, of course, uh, obscures the system of racism. Uh, A racist must be aware that they're racist, which then, of course, denies the power of implicit bias. And they must intentionally seek to be mean to somebody based on race. So individual conscious malintent across race. And that definition exempts virtually all white people from the very system we're in um, and that we, you know, are invested in, quite frankly. So if that's my definition of a racist and you just suggest something I've said or done is is racist, um, no matter how diplomatically you try to say it, what I'm going to hear is you just said I was an immoral person. You just said I was a deliberately mean person. And now I'm going to have to defend my moral character. It just so beautifully sets us up to refuse to engage um, and to be defensive. And and that in turn (laughs) polices you into not going there with us, lest you risk more punishment. So, you know, in thinking about uh, the the pushback you probably receive uh, and engaging with uh, white people about these ideas. um, So for our listeners, again, you've been, you know, been a consultant and a trainer for over 20 years on issues of race, uh, racial and social justice. Um, And, you know, you've just talked about some of the challenges that some people face when, you know, you kind of confront them with uh, maybe their ideologies or, or even their behaviors. And so I'm interested in like, you know, you know, listening or hearing more about the challenges you face in talking about racism with white people. And, you know, also like how, how do you overcome those barriers? You know, the first challenge I, I, it came to my mind when you thanked me for doing this work and, and I appreciate that. And there is a dilemma in me as a white person doing this work, right? Most people, if you ask them, Um, how often have you had a teacher of the same race as yourself and how often from a different race? Uh, Most white people overwhelmingly will say pretty much always I've had a teacher 
of my own race. And people of color, pretty much the answer is seldom and sometimes never, right? So so over and over, the archetype of, of the holder of knowledge, right? Uh, the authority, the disciplinarian is, is a white person. And so here I stand in front of people every day, yet again, right? Like every other pretty much um, uh, leader or authority uh, as certified by dominant culture um, as an expert, on race, no less, right? So as I stand there, I know that I am reinforcing uh, whiteness, right? I am reinforcing all of that for everyone who's who's listening to me, whether they're conscious of it or not. At the same time, you know, based on the power of implicit bias, mo- white people are more likely to be open to hearing it from me than they would be from a person of color. So you've got this kind of, as Audre Lorde uh, calls the master's tools dilemma. (laughs) On the one hand, I am centering whiteness. On the other hand, I'm using my position to challenge it, right? Because um, in a tricky sleight of hand, whiteness stays centered by being unmarked and unnamed, right? It's the backdrop that's never identified. You know, you have race. I don't have race. You're a special, particular kind of human. I am a universal, uh, unmarked human, right? I mean, I could go on about how whiteness remains unmarked. So to decenter it, you have to expose it, right? So it's a it's a both end uh, constantly that I'm navigating. But for me to not use that my position in that way is to really be white, right? And I, I, I'm just not going to be silent and maintain white solidarity on it, even though part of the price is, is the reinforcement of it. Uh, so that's one dilemma, right? And it's certainly one that people of color notice and sometimes understandably feel some resentment for, right? There's not much I'm saying that hasn't been said for centuries by people of color. And so much of what I'm able to articulate about what it means to be white rests on the brilliant, uh, mentorship and, and work of people of color. You know, as an insider to whiteness, I do have an understanding that you can't have, but I think people of color understand what it means to be white to a degree that I never will. So you've got all that, those tensions. Um, and while white people are a little more open to hearing it from me, you know, we're not that open. So pushback, of course, is... Um, taking umbrage about being generalized about, uh, finding, you know, one thing to dismiss the whole presentation on, right. Um, you didn't tell me the answer. You didn't tell me what to do. Um, you, you missed, you didn't, you, you know, identify your gender pronouns. So now I don't have to listen to you. I mean, the left can be as, um, as vicious as the right, quite frankly, in really different ways. So it's incredibly difficult to get the, arguably most complex, nuanced, and sensitive topic in society to get that right by everybody, right? I mean, there's no way I can get this right by everybody. I just try to get it as right as I can, as often as I can, by as many as I can. Uh, and and I, I can't trust myself to determine that, right? I have to be accountable, uh, in particular to people of color. White people's feedback at this point has uh, doesn't carry much weight for me. Because I think most white people are not actually informed enough to be able to give good feedback. 
And if a white person is upset by my talk, honestly, I probably gave a really good talk. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and I think, uh, you know, even going along those lines uh, in one of the articles you wrote um, and we I saw in the International Journal of Critical Pedagogy um, about white fragility and you talk about triggers and even in your book too, racial triggers. And, you know, you state that, you know, these triggers usually cause whites to make defensive moves that include, you know, an outward display of emotions like anger, fear, and guilt. And one of the reasons I was definitely interested and excited for this interview and this conversation too, is because even on our podcast, we kind of have uh, this segment called, um, Oh Lord news. And in the beginning, you know, we kind of always kind of talk about outrageous news stories, but a lot of them for most of the time always has a story that's been viral, especially with how you kind of talked about earlier, um, how, you know, race and stuff like this can be weaponized in a lot of ways. And we see a lot of the stories, the viral stories we've been highlighting have been dealing with the weapon, weaponizing the police, mm-hmm. calling the police for minor, not even really any infractions at all, you know, from the barbecues to little girls selling water to babysitting, using coupons, mowing lawns, and the list just continues to go on and on. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing and maybe why we're seeing this um, uh, happening so much now as far as even like the police being called on black folk for these issues and maybe tying it to white fragility? Sure. I'm not sure that we're seeing more. I think we now have the means to document what you've been saying for a very long time and what we have not believed, right? That doesn't happen to me. I can't even conceive of worrying about sitting in a Starbucks without ordering anything and being asked to leave, much less have the police called. So when you tell me that happens to you, I just say, well, I'm not sure that's what that was about, right? But now we can record it. Now you have proof this happens to us and it's always happened to us. So whether it's increasing is hard to say, I just think, again, there's a means to to document and prove it. Um, It may also be, uh, if it is increasing, it may be this kind of fear of uh, annihilation, if you will, right? Fear of losing place. Uh, I mean, the more equality uh, there is, the more white people feel threatened, right? Because equality uh, means that we uh, don't have... Uh, you know, a dominant position over, over, over other people. I think there's also a kind of what, what white people are responding to is I'm going to use a, an old fashioned term, uppityness, right? It's like you are not in your place. Um, this is my place. And your place is somewhere else, but it's not here. Um, one. And two, when you're in my place, you will defer to me. Right. It's that kind of Jim Crow. You step off the curb when I come down it. This is not necessarily conscious, but no white person grows up in this society, regardless of your age and and doesn't internalize a message uh, of white superiority. It's relentless. Um, I mean, everybody internalizes it. Uh, The research shows that by age three to four, all children, all children of all races who grow up here uh, understand by three to four that it's better to be white. You know, the message isn't lost on children uh, from a very early age. Now, the impact that message has on me, because I am white, is going to be different than it has on you, but we all get it. And so you've got all this internalized superiority that, of course, can never be admitted to because that would mean I was a bad person. You probably have some guilt. Um, you have some anxiety. Uh, you have some uh, definitely lack of skill or capacity to to withstand 
the tension and the discomfort. You, you have a group of people who have come to feel entitled to be racially comfortable. So perceive racial discomfort as some kind of breach in the social contract. When you put all that together, it makes us pretty irrational. And I'm going to bet that the two of you um, have noticed that white people can be really irrational on this topic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I think that I think all of that is kind of what you're seeing uh, in this reporting people for breathing, quite frankly. Go ahead and breathe. Just don't breathe in my, in my Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you know, I add something. I, I think the kind of police state of terrorism, white the white collective has needed that in order to have superior schools and neighborhoods, right? I, I actually don't think middle class and upper class white people, I think they're um, invested in not having schools be equal. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we want our equity and our home, you know, home value going up. And in order to do that, somebody's has to be down. And as long mm-hmm. as you were kept over there in a police state and I didn't know what happened to you or how it how it worked, as long as I got the outcome, I was fine with it. I think it's a little harder now to not face it <laughs> because now it can be visually shown. It happened during the civil rights movement. Right. The white collective was shocked when they saw, you know, people being fire hosed and beaten at lunch counters. I mean, it was going on all along, but as long as we didn't know about it, it was okay. And so there was this incredible cognitive dissonance between what we profess to value, our morality, and what is actually taking place in order to protect our interests. And so you get those tensions too. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It it mm-hmm. does. And it actually leads me to um, the next question about the, the factors that contribute to right, white fragility, because um, I know um, in, in the article from the International Journal of Critical Pedagogy, uh, you talked about uh, like white isolation. And so that kind of like leads to your last point, like if we can isolate ourselves, if we can kind of not see the problem, like conveniently not see the problem, then, you know, it kind of leads to this outcome. So I was wondering if you could actually talk about uh, some of the factors, some of the other factors, uh, particularly um, your point on universalism and individualism. Um, Just wanted to know, you know, how do both of these discourses contribute to white fragility? Yeah. You will, um, first of all, they're, they're different, right? And yet um, white people, will we will use them interchangeably. And I think about it as it doesn't have to make sense. It just has to work. Uh, and to work, it needs to get racism off the table. So, you know, we're, we're in a meeting at work, a school board, a city council meeting, and we're making decisions that will impact the lives of people who aren't at those tables, and who the people who are at the tables have never been taught to see as valuable, never been taught to consider, uh, live in isolation from, right? And racism comes up, and it's amazing how quick white folks get it off the table, right? So individualism and universalism, even though they're kind of contrary to one another, they'll get invoked in the same conversation because the goal is simply to get racism off the table, which, of course, protects the racist hierarchy and the white position within it. So individualism is uh, an ideology that each person is special and unique, that there's some kind of intact 
you know, stationary, stable, unified person inside here. You know, you get that go find yourself as if there's some self to find when in fact I'm different selves in different contexts. Right. Um, and so since I'm unique, that allows me a couple of things. One, it allows me that discourse allows me to exempt myself from the forces of socialization, you know, to claim that I've been completely untouched by them and that just because I want to be free of bias, I, I am. Um, and it also allows me to protect um, myself from any kind of challenge in terms of, um, I see this, this the narrative of uh, the discourse of personal experience also playing out this way, right? So you challenge me, right? I tell you I was taught to treat everyone the same. And you challenge that. And I come back with, well, that's just my personal experience. And as soon as I invoke that, well, then there's nothing you can do because you can't know my personal experience according to this discourse, right? My pers personal experience is it within myself and only I can know it. Right. Again, according to the ideology, I would say there is no personal experience in that way, that all experience is sociopolitical, that I can only make meaning of what I'm perceiving through the, you know, sociopolitical framework I've been conditioned to make meaning through. But that narrative allows me to pull all that off, exempt myself and then protect myself from challenge. Um, and I know you, you guys are at SUNY New Paltz, so I know I can do I can uh, speak about <laughs> these kind of post-structuralist terms. Um, <laughs> I have to do that a little more uh, accessibly when I'm in front of a mainstream audience. But I, I'm assuming you're tracking me um, mm -hmm. on that. OK. And then universalism is that kind of I mean, in the in a really simplistic way, individualism says, why can't we all be individuals? In other words, why can't we all be different? Why do we have to? Uh, proceed as if race had any meaning, right? My race has no meaning. Uh, I'm unique and special. And universalism says, why can't we proceed as if race has no meaning? Not because we're all different, but because we're all the same. Because we all bleed red, uh, you know, we're, you know, all red under the skin. We're all God's creatures. We're all human on and on and on. Right. Um, and so there is no specific experience that can be um, engaged with in any meaningful way, right? So your race has no meaning. My race has no meaning. Um, now, the presumed human experience, of course, is the white experience, right? You know, um, in reality, I, I have been taught to see you as having a specific perspective, um, and I just have a universal human one. This is why Robert Altman makes films that are universally accessible to everybody, you know, um, Steven Stilberg, and then Spike Lee makes black films. And while, you know, Hemingway and I don't know, Shakespeare and <laughs> Louisa May Alcott uh, write books that are universal, but Toni Morrison writes, you know, about the black experience. There's no mm -hmm. white experience. The white experience really stand, it, human experiences stand in for white experience. Richard Dyer, who's a film critic, talks about that as the God trick, that white people kind of just proclaim reality from some disembodied position, right? Like white men don't speak as white men, they speak as humans. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's kind of how universalism functions and what it grants to white people. Neither of those are really 
really authentically applied to people who are not white. Mm, yeah, and that's and that's interesting because um even like looking at some of your um work and one of the things I think th- that you said you've noticed during your experience of giving talks and consulting and stuff like that um uh, is kind of this your experience something known as what you call the rules of engagement uh, which you said is rooted in white fragility and kind of the experience of how people uh, white people should feel as far as getting feedback on things of having conversations centered around race or racism and how predominantly these feelings are come about within them of things that they should be said, like not giving feedback on the racism under any circumstances or talking about it privately or giving it back immediately. These kind of set standards to make white, white people feel more comfortable um, when having these conversations. Um, so can you just talk a little bit more about the, this rules of engagement you found and, and how you overcome these or, or bring this out when you have your workshops and discussions? And, and again, I imagine you've come across these unspoken rules of engagement mm-hmm. uh, that apparently you should know. Um, and, you know, it, it, it came about um, in a few different ways. One is just how uh, often people will gather to be educated on racism, but the moment you actually try to help them see how their own racism is manifesting, then, you know, white fragility erupts. Um you, you can never suggest that it's actually that person who's participating. You know, we're back to the good, bad binary. I mean, that, that functions so, so powerfully and so effectively. And yet it's so simple. It's, it's brilliant, right? In that way. Um, mm-hmm. And that article actually came out of a, um, a experience where I was the director of equity, a co-director of equity for a large nonprofit. And there was a meeting and I met with the, the white group afterwards um, we, you know, it was a pretty, a very progressive organization. We had a, a racial affinity groups and I met with the white racial affinity group. And, you know, I didn't very delicately say the following. I said, oh my goodness, you and you, I pointed to, you know, I, I named them, I'm not going to use their names. Your whiteness was really showing in that meeting. And I was about to tell them what I had noticed. And, mm. but I didn't get that far. All hell broke loose three hours later and just tears and tears and tears um, of every, you know, you, you did it wrong. Right. And everything, every rule that I list there basically came out in that three hour a session that, that had mm. come following the fact that I had named their whiteness and not done it correctly. Although I, you know, I'm being facetious again, but there, I think the cardinal really, rule really is there really is no right way to give white people feedback on racism. We don't want feedback on racism. Um, and because I'm in this work, I'd be working with a lot of organizations and there was always all this talk about having to build trust. We have to make sure there's trust. We have to create a safe space, you know, before we can have these discussions. And I, I spent some time asking every white person I could, tell me what it is you need to trust will or won't happen, right? What is it? And really, they couldn't really tell me other than, and, and I'm going to put this in my own words, but it always seemed to come down to was, I need to trust that you won't think I'm racist before I can engage in a dialogue about racism. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I just say, well, let's let go of that. I think you're racist. I mean, let's just start there. I'm racist, right? I I think all white people are socialized into a racist worldview, um, patterns, uh, uh, investments. 
assumptions, frameworks. I mean, it's the water we're swimming in. So let's just start from that premise. You you won't fool me, you know, Um, and it's actually incredibly liberating and transformative to start from that premise. I can't tell you how liberating it is to just start from the premise that, of course, you've been thoroughly conditioned as a white person uh, into a racist worldview, racist patterns, racist investments, and investments also in not seeing any of those things. Um, and so once you just accept that, you can stop defending, deflecting, denying, you know, hoping you won't notice, explaining and just get to work trying to figure out, well, what does that socialization look like in my life? How is it coming out in my relationships, in my work? That's actually exciting. But the current paradigm just doesn't allow for that. The current paradigm can only reject any suggestion that a white person could be involved in racism. Mm, that's um, really insightful. Um, so in, in thinking about um, everything you just talked about, how do we move forward from here? Like, in other words, you know, what are some of the practical applications of your work um, and what suggestions um, do you have uh, that you would give to universities to address uh, white fragility? Yeah, I mean, it's the first thing I want to use, just use an analogy is it's, it's a lot like water dripping on a rock. <laughs> um, that's that's how it's been for me. Um, it's taken years. I mean, I didn't understand it the first time I heard it, the second time I heard it. And even now I, I slip back. I think the last chapter I share a recent example of my own perpetration of racism towards a coworker. Um, I'm very confident as a result of this work that I, I, I perpetrate less racism, which means I do less harm. And that is no small thing. Because less harm could be one more hour on your life that you didn't take home my indignities and slights and spend a lot of time agonizing over whether it was worth it to try to talk to me about it or not. Right. Less harm is no small thing. Um, It leads to less stress, which leads to people living longer. Um, I'm sure you know that the difference in life span has to do with stress-related diseases between white people uh, and people of color and black people in particular. Um, so it has to be sustained. That's, that's the first thing. Um, and I mean, the, the bottom line, I mean, if you could get white people to actually come from that premise that of course they have these patterns, then they would actually be not only receptive to you helping them see them, were you on the occasion to choose to do that? But they would they would be grateful for it. They would understand the risk that it took, that there's a history of harm. You know, I often ask people of color, how often have you attempted to give a white person feedback on their racist assumptions or patterns and had that go well for you? You know, and they'd laugh, you know, like, like never, or, you know, or maybe once or twice. And so I just say, so what would it be like if you could? What would it be like if you could just say what you're thinking and feeling and have us receive it with grace and reflect and seek to change? And I'll never forget asking that question to a group of people and a man of color raising his hand and saying it would be revolutionary. You know, a revolution (laughs) that we would receive that with grace and try to change. Like, that's how difficult we are. But it's also how easy this is, right? I mean, is that a tall order? No, but it is a tall order from the current paradigm. 
So in, in, in what do we do? It's, we have to internalize a different paradigm and that, that takes on a sustained education, you know, reflection. I think that the reason the term white fragility has been useful is it kind of preempts some of that behavior so that when it starts to come up, you have some language to push back on it. Um, and you have to get racism on the table, right? And, and you have to be able to keep it on the table and white fragility keeps it from the table. Ibram Kende, uh, I'm not sure if you're, if you, he's an Africana studies scholar, uh, won the national book award for his, amazing book, um, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive mm. History of Racist Ideas in America. He's a black scholar. Um, he, he basically says a racist policy is any policy with a racially unequal outcome. Mm. Well, that would basically make all policies in education racist policies. Uh, <laughs> that if you truly believe all people are equal, the only explanation for racial inequality is racial discrimination. So get all your policies on the table and try to challenge uh, how how are these policies reproducing racial inequality and then therefore how can we change them? Um, anyway, those are the top of my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's really good. And just as a because as I'm thinking about you know the work you do and I know you've been doing consulting, stuff like that. So do you, because I have a lot of friends that are in the, you know, I'm in academia and also have a lot of friends that are in um, the corporate world and, you know, and they're black like me. And a lot of times we have tons of conversations about the microaggressions or the things they experience while, um, you know, on the job. I think I was looking at one of your um, talks, I think it was a C-SPAN one, you kind of gave the example of, I think it was a friend of yours or, or associate of yours that was moving to a particular community and felt that it was dangerous and they needed guns, but largely because people of color were living there. And that's actually pretty a common conversation that I have with uh, my friends and colleagues that are in the corporate world and people living in certain neighborhoods and saying, oh, I couldn't live here because it's too quote unquote urban or because it's particular crime rates or the school system, et cetera, all these kind of racially coded language. And they, and they really, they know what it is when they hear it immediately, but they don't address it. And then they kind of bring it home with them and they have these conversations. And, and even how you said doing less harm, like having an hour less of having to dwell on these things. I think it's just important, right. Of just understanding or creating a space where you can have these conversations with grace or without any other issues um, and things along those lines. Um, So do you have experience? Like, I guess you probably do, but just curious, you know, even for our listeners of going, speaking at, I don't know, corporate workshops and stuff like that and having these conversations with people who might not be as progressive maybe or in these kind of settings where they're may- more likely to have these kind of conversations. Yeah. Um, well, I have several thoughts on that. Well, first one, I, I just want to say I, I've never seen whiteness so fiercely protected as it is in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm in either form, corporate America or academia. I actually think mm-hmm. if you cannot grapple with these issues with any kind of nuance, you're not qualified to do anything. You're not qualified mm-hmm. to lead. You're not qualified to teach. You're actually not qualified to sit at the reception desk and greet people, right? And, and I just wish from the top that that sentiment was taken up so that anyone who have you interviewed for any position anywhere had to be able to demonstrate that they had some capacity to engage with some kind of complexity in these issues that that would be mm-hmm. really make a huge impact uh, most most professors cannot 
right? So it either is left off or it's left to the end and then never you've gotten to, or it goes into silence or, you know, you, you know, you're, you're there, you know, um, mm-hmm. and then there's corporate America. And I, I, I have to say, uh, there's, I, there may be a check the box kind of interest or a, we don't want to get sued kind of interest, but I don't think there's a sincere investment. And so part of the ways that you kind of change that is, is you you help white people see the humanity by by bearing witness. I mean, I, I, more and more, I'm thinking about being raised as white, as being raised to never have to bear witness to the pain of racism on people of color, uh, and never being held accountable for the pain I've caused people of color. And so I have no capacity. And one of the things I'm noticing. When I work with these, say, large tech companies, those they're corporate, they're overwhelmingly under 30. Um, and most of those young white people cannot answer the question, what does it mean to be white? What are some of the ways in which your race has shaped your life? They can't answer that question. And that's not benign, right? Because they bring that to the table with them and they're few co-workers of color, and again, black people in particular that are working with them understand that most white people can't answer that question, that we have no insight or awareness or criticality on how our race shapes our own experiences. And if I can't tell you how my race shapes my life, I'm not going to be able to hold how your race shapes your life, right? I'm going to have no ability to hold an alternative experience to mine because I don't even know what mine is, right? So if I can't tell you what it means, to be white, I can't tell you, I can't hold what it means not to be white. And so people working in, in overwhelmingly white environments have to tread so lightly as not to unsettle white people who can't engage. And that was the thing that really struck me is when these people of color shared their pain in these rooms with their white co-workers their white co-workers were dumbfounded like they they had no idea <laughs> that that their co-workers of color were in that much pain they were mm. oblivious to it i mean and again i want to make the point that that's not benign but that when they actually bore witness to it it was very transforming to them but that's because there was a container if you will there was a space created where those people of color felt that they could share that and that the facilitators would kind of have their back. And then we could also facilitate the the white people into receiving that in constructive ways. Um, So I think, I think it has to be very um, intentional and strategic, but space can be created. It's likely, however, not going to just happen. Mm. Uh, thank you for your thoroughness and thoughtfulness and, and all of the responses. I, I, I've gotten a lot from this interview and I really hope our listeners uh, do, too. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover um, that you'd like to address? Anything you'd like to add um, that, you know, maybe didn't come up earlier? Well, thank you for that question. Um, would you say the majority of your listeners are, are white or do you know? Not uh, they're probably black. Okay. I, yeah, more likely they're black. Although mm-hmm. I will say that you know, at 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 home, so I live in the Midwest. Um, I have come across a lot of uh, my husband's friends who are not black. Um, 
who do listen um, and share. So, you know, we they do it because they know me, but hopefully it's kind of spreading it to some other people too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I had a thought, I, I realized something that I hadn't, you would asked kind of how, how uh, white people can take this on. One of the ways I try to do it, right? So you're, they're having a conversation, white people are going into that kind of danger narrative. Um, I wrote a piece called Stop Telling That Story. Uh, danger discourse and the white racial frame, like how, you know, how white people kind of reinforce uh, white supremacy through these stories. Um, so there's a couple strategies I use and I, I try to point the finger inward, not outward. So I, the first thing I will do is try to identify with the person in order to bring the defensiveness down. So I'll, be, uh, so I might say I had that same fear um, before I, I don't know, moved or got to know or visited. Right. So, Okay, I can identify. And I've had the opportunity to, and whatever it is, you know, learn about this, talk to people of color, spend some time, uh, see it from their perspective. And it's really changed how I think about what that means. And then I just kind of share what I've come to understand. You can't really argue with my insights, you know. I'm not telling you what you should know or do. I'm telling you this is what I, how I now see it. And it, it may or may not shift that other person, but they did have to hear a counter narrative. And that's important. And I broke with white solidarity and that's really healthy for me. So I, I do it for me, um, not the other person. And that actually kind of helps the delivery uh, be more effective. I guess my two closing thoughts for white, white audiences uh, is that niceness is not anti-racist. Um, it, it's better than meanness. I'm not saying don't be nice, but be, being nice is not um, not being racist. You know, that's a double negative. But smiling friendliness will not change racial inequality. Uh, so you have to go much deeper than just whether or not you're friendly to people of color. And there's so much good information out there today. When white people ask me, what do I do? I offer them a a challenging question back. How have you managed not to know? It's 2018. Why is that your Mm -hmm. question? I mean, one of the most simplest uh, ways to break with the apathy of whiteness is go look it up. Like you would look up anything you cared about, right? There's so much good information. What I want to say to uh, the people of color listening, honestly, on behalf of my people, I apologize for our nonsense. And I want you to know that it's not you. It is us. Uh, There is gaslighting going on. Um, And I am going to do my best, uh, as flawed as I am, uh, as a part of the same system I'm trying to challenge. But I I am going to um, keep breaking with white solidarity and try to get my people to knock off the nonsense so you don't have to go home and agonize about how to navigate our nonsense. Well, we thank you for that. We <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs> it definitely means something for sure. And, um, you know, overall, this whole conversation, we appreciate you taking the co- time to come talk with us. You know, is there um, uh, for you to plug anything as far as social media, websites and stuff like that? You know, where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about this? Where would you like to send them? Well, thank you. Um, I'm not much on social media, but my website, Robin D'Angelo, one word, dot com. 
has um, many videos of me giving talks, all my publications, um, and a whole tab of resources uh, for people that can kind of launch them into then um, other venues of, of resources. And of course, my book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, actually, for yes, sure. Yes, <laughs> we will link that uh, and we'll link your website and, and other resources. Definitely. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, no, thank you. Um, thank you. We appreciate this conversation on, on white fragility, Dr. D'Angelo. And it will definitely make sure our listeners, I know they'll learn something. We'll make sure we post these resources so that they can continue to follow your work and be engaged in this conversation, but also hopefully contribute to making a change with this as well, not just leaving you out of the conversation. So we appreciate all that you do. Well, you're so you're so welcome. Thanks for what you do too. Thank you. Yo, yo, Dad. So, what you think about Dr. Dr. D'Angelo stopping by and talking to us about white fragility? You know, I'm really happy to have had this conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, with her, Um, you know, so she kind of mentioned how, you know, it's a double edged sword that she is a a white woman who has these conversations. So in one way is centering whiteness. But on the other end, it is so important to have white people who are willing to speak truth to power, you know, as some people would say. Mm -hmm. So just just really and that she's even willing to like be like self-reflective uh and you know how she talked about her story you know the the progressive you know white persona and how difficult it is sometimes for even progressive white people to like see past their progressiveness and like see some of their problematic uh mm-hmm. probably ideologies and behaviors so mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. good yeah, it's funny because um, in one of her talks that I, I um, looked at in preparing for this interview, she talked about how and she may talk about it in her book, too, towards the end, but how she, um, you know, she understands she's a white progressive and, you know, has been an I feel like she's an ally. And in doing that, I think there was a situation where she was at a meeting and, you know, somebody's uh, uh, there was a black woman with dreads and then. You know, somebody said something and then she like mentioned something about her hair, you know, as in joking, trying to show the black woman like, yeah, I get, you know, what they're missing. Like I see from your eyes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And just had a little joke about her hair, but that really offended the the black woman, um, uh, which she found out later on. And then she wound up, you know, talking to the black woman and and and, and addressing the issue. And she told the, and the black woman asked her, like, you know, when they came to agreement and she was just like, hey, would you rather me, you know, next time this happens? Like pretty much she, the black woman told her, like, when this happens again, you know, not if it happens again, which, <laughs> which she, she laughed at because she you knows like, yo, you're probably going to do it again. She's like, would you like me to address it publicly or privately? You know, mm-hmm. and Dr. D'Angelo said, you know, she took the response that most people would say instead of saying privately, she said no publicly, um, you know, because I would accept it, you know, humbly and and understand, accept the, you know, the feedback or whatever. But it's also so other people would see, too, you know, who may not understand what they're doing is wrong or other white folks that are in the room or in that space, you mm-hmm. know, which I thought was very interesting that she's still even to this day doing this for, you know, over a couple of decades, still finds herself, you know, having to challenge this and readdress these issues of notions of race and racism just mm-hmm. in the daily lives that can still be problematic. She actually said she she had a, a quotable. We probably gonna have to put this uh, on on the website. Create a meme out of it. She <laughs> said, "Niceness is not anti-racism." Oh my goodness, that is. It's 
Baby, you can be as nice as you want. You can do the smile. Actually, you know how people always, well, I don't know, on message boards, they always talk about whether the North is more racist than the South or the South is more racist than the North. And, you know, people always talk about, or some people are like, you know, I like the South, you know, because people, you know, might be blatant with it or I prefer the the North because, you know, at least people are friendly. But it's just kind of like, you know, friendliness does not uh, equal or equate to being anti-racist. Uh, that's a good mm-hmm. start. You know, we want to be mm-hmm. nice and respectful to people, but that doesn't mean we don't also have to interrogate what's going on beneath the surface. Exactly. I mean, that's, I mean that is a quotable. We, we got to make something out of that because it's right, man. A lot of times people just, even when we see the blowback from these responses and the examples we gave when people calling the police um, on uh, you know, black folk and then how, when they get caught up in it, you know, they're trying to, their response is like, Oh, you know, I'm really nice. It's such a good person. Or they start crying and all this other kind of stuff to really play on that, that sentiment of like, yo, I'm not a racist, you know, I'm not mean and evil and doing this with malintent, but, but you are, you know, just, <laughs> and you're just mad because you got caught really more than anything. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. You know, I appreciate, I'm, I'm happy, you know, the work that she's doing and I, and, and people like herself and even, um, she cites the work of people like Tim Wise and of course all other black authors as well. I wrote down the name stamp from the beginning of that author and check out um, his work. Um, but you know, like, like her and Tim Wise and things like that, like she said in the beginning of the interview, like this is nothing new really for communities of color. One, as far as the work they're doing. Um, and it's been said since, you know, the beginning of time. Uh, and it's the, 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 the importance of their work is that, you know, they probably get a little bit more access to these white spaces to give them that shock factor. Or they're maybe a little bit more willing to listen, you know, to the to these white folks. But I like how the recognition of like, listen, this is not my work. I didn't originate this. This is nothing that I've said or developed. I'm just, you know, speaking or amplifying the voices of the people who you may not have welcome into this space, which I think is very important. I I did too. Like she said, we ain't new to this, but I'm going to be true to this. And it's a lot of people. (laughs) That is, I actually, I looked at her, uh, like the, the reference list and I, you know, I saw, I was like, wow, she, she, she got some good folk up on this list you know, in terms of like who she's citing, you know, the work she's engaging with. And like you said, I, I, w- I really appreciated that she said this. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not creating this, but it's, it's a voice that's needed given how, when, when black authors or theorists or, or anti-racist workers say this, you know, there's this natural belief that they have an axe to grind because of who they are. And it just go like, we can't do the work alone. We need allies because sometimes it is those people who can open the doorway to, you know, having people to say, okay, yeah, I want to look into this a little bit more deeply. So. Mm-hmm. And, and now, you know, to our white listeners, right. Even our black listeners, but to our white listeners who are always confused and maybe looking for a resource, of trying to understand whiteness and what it is and how it affects, you know, people of color, you know, you can now go to, or just either port people to this interview, you know, or mm-hmm. pick up the book, White Fragility, or look at other folks who are doing this work. Um, but at least you have a starting point of somewhere where you can be like, hey, check out this person's work and maybe it'll give you a better understanding of how to address this or what's going on when we talk about things like whiteness. Because it's very true. I think a lot of kids, a lot of, not just kids, but white people, when you say, what, it, what does it mean to be white? It's probably very, very hard for them to answer that question. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why whiteness studies is 
is important because, and you know, that's what I was trying to articulate in the beginning. And then in the middle of the interviews, you know, she kind of got into, you know, how whiteness is seen as, you know, the norm. It is, you know, something that we never interrogate. And that's exactly why whiteness studies is important to show that like it, whiteness is not the, the backdrop for which we should judge everyone else. Like it is its own entity. Um, and it is something that we need to delve deep into in order to overcome some of the problematic, um, issues related to whiteness as a whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, finally her points on just suggestions of recommendations of how to, what to do. And I think it is important that in leadership positions or hopefully eventually lead to all positions, but understanding, especially in this country, the idea of race and racism and racist, racist identities, uh, racial identities, um, I think should be a requirement for all jobs, you know, uh, moving forward. Like people should know this, especially if you're going to be working with people or creating things. I think that has to be uh, a major requirement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, thanks to Dr. D'Angelo. Uh, continue the work. We're definitely going to list um, the resources, her resources, and and any other uh, uh, resources related to whiteness. So there's like Peggy McIntosh and the Invisible Knapsack, and so there there are a lot of things that I think we can link to this article. To you know, people in the comfort of your own home can kind of get familiarized with these things and maybe push through, push past the mm-hmm. issues that they have. Mm-hmm. For sure. But as always, you know, uh, we appreciate, like I said, appreciate Dr. D'Angelo taking the time on our busy schedule. Come chat with us. Um, uh, if you want to, you know, continue these conversations, of course, you can follow us on social media uh, at BHD Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Visit our website, www.blackandhollydangerous.com to keep up with our most latest content. Uh, you can always email us at bhdpodcast at gmail.com with ideas of, of topics or guests, or if you even want to be a guest on this podcast, definitely feel free to email us with that information. Mm -hmm. Um, And as always, continue to share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies, and continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. Worst fear.